You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. So, we have two mascots. Oh, we do. In our recording studio. We, and first of I all, hear one of them snoring right now. <laughs> no, and it's not Lindsay. One of them is Ava Gardner, which you gifted Lindsay and me with this beautiful photograph and an actual signed check yes. that Ava Gardner signed. She's become our patron saint of yes. our podcast. Yes, yeah, she's our patron saint. <laughs> and our other mascot is our dog, Sally. Oh, the best mascot. Yes, she's a great mascot, but... You have a great mascot at your house, too. I do. I do. I also have a little rescue mutt, a little terrier mix named Myrna, of course, named after Myrna Loy, because that's the film freak I am. Of course. Of (laughs) course. I had a question for you about Myrna. Now, for Sally, when we first got her, it was my mission to teach her four things. Sit, shake a paw, roll over, and I wanted her to be able to say her prayers. Wow, that is ambitious. It it was ambitious, (laughs) and I worked at it, and and Lindsay was like, she's never going to learn it. And she did, but- All four? She did learn all four. Wow. Yeah, she did learn all four. So I'm curious. My question is, did you do anything with Myrna in terms of those kinds of things? Myrna is an underachiever. (laughs) We we got Myrna to, to sit. That's good. Um, that's about it. Okay. <laughs> and to not pee in the house. Yeah. And not pee in the house. Yeah. <laughs> yes. She, she was, she was a willful lass. Yes. Well, that's the perfect segue into the extraordinary creatures that we are going to be talking about today, because 
they know a lot more than how to sit yeah. <laughs> and how to say their prayers. They do. They do. This episode is sort of a companion piece to our episode about kids, kind of hearkening back to W.C. Fields when he said, don't ever work with kids or animals. <laughs> right. Well, we talked about the kids. Let's talk about the animals. <laughs> yes. So the first animal star dated all the way back to 1905. Isn't that incredible? It is. And that was Blair in the silent film Rescued by Rover, which in looking, I've never seen that film, but in looking at the photos of it, oh my word. Kind of a little side note about Blair. Blair wasn't really a trained dog. It was actually the family collie of the director. (laughs) So, you know, in the early days, I don't think they had these training facilities and all these animal handlers. So this director just said, oh, I've got a dog. Let's put him in this movie. It really is amazing because when you see what this dog is, I mean, the dog is on the river. The dog is, you know, (laughs) it's everywhere. And then Scraps is also a dog. Oh, Scraps. In 1918. And that was, of course, Charlie Chaplin's dog in A Dog's Life. Yeah, the little guy with a black eye. I think everybody remembers. But I think what Colin Farrell says, and you quote this in your blog, (laughs) about animals is not that we shouldn't work with them, but that animals have an honesty that human beings reach to find in their lives at the best of times. And I feel like that's why animals in films and the ones that we're going to be talking about today really touch our hearts. And we remember them and they make us cry. And it's an amazing thing that they do. Yeah, they're they're such an integral part to so many movies. I mean, uh, and it's so nice that we're getting to honor some of them today. Now, everybody knows Rin Tin Tin. Everybody knows Lassie and Benji. But let's start, first of all, with Petey from The Little Rascals. Yes, Petey. I love Petey. He's a great guy. He really is. Of course, our gang, also known as The Little Rascals, it made household names out of so many of them. Spanky, Alfalfa, Darla. But it also made a household name out of this. American um, Pitbull Terrier, yeah. Yeah. And I think it was sort of a, a, almost a by accident that Petey became such a prevalent part of these kids' adventures. But when you think about The Little Rascals now, you don't not think about Yes, exactly. In fact, my sister had an American pit bull and she, he was white. He did not have the circle, but she (laughs) named her Petey. Oh, in (laughs) honor, in honor. Yes. You know, the original Petey was played by a dog named Pal the Wonder Dog. Well, that's quite a name. I was going to say, that's a lot to live up to. It is. (laughs) He was owned and trained by Harry Lucinet, and he was already a star before he even appeared in the first Our Gang movie, because he was in this short called The Glorious Fourth in 1927. He'd already appeared in the Buster Brown movies. Okay. He was Ty in those, and he was also in the Harold Lloyd movie, The freshman in 1923. So he was quite experienced. He was. When Hal Roach brought him into the Our Gang movies, he was already pretty well trained, really ready to go. But interestingly, he was born with a black semicircle around his eye. He didn't have the full circle. They wanted the full circle, so they used permanent dye and completed (laughs) the circle. (laughs) Well, that was cutting edge makeup for the time. And now ladies pay lots of money to have this permanent (laughs) makeup. (laughs) To have that permanent. (laughs) Maybe men too. I don't know. Right. He started with a three-year contract with six-month options. And what was his starting salary? He started out at 125 bucks a week, which was more than the Little Rascals themselves were making. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Except for, I think, Farina made a little bit more. Okay. So, I love that Farina was the highest paid. Yeah, which is kind of interesting. Yes, you know, If you yes. think about it in context of history. Yes, exactly. 
But I love the fact that the kids made less than the dog. Yeah. We talked about the circle, making the, the, the complete circle around the eye. I think it made him one of the most recognizable animals ever. Just such an icon, that circle. I, it, doesn't the target dog have yes, a circle Yes, the target now? dog still. Yeah. There's... So I think we have a little tip of the hat to Petey there. For sure. All these decades later. Yeah. Unfortunately, Petey's life was cut short. And it's kind of this weird, controversial thing. He was actually poisoned by tainted meat. Oh, no. And a lot of people felt that, you know, Pal, the guy that played Petey, was killed by somebody with a grudge against Lucine, the trainer. The trainer. Uh, apparently, when the kids found out, they were inconsolable. Oh, can you imagine? Oh. I mean, when you look at the photos of Petey with them, he's one of them. Yeah. He's, they're, you know, they're lined up and he's just part of it. And as a young child, to oh, have that dog that taken like that. That is heartbreaking. I know, such a sad ending for poor Petey. So did they replace him? They did replace him. Lucine had another pup who was actually Pal's offspring. Okay. And they named him Lucine's Pete. (laughs) Okay, Lucine's Pete. And he was only six months old when he entered the Our Gang movies. He didn't have the circle at all. So they literally had Max Factor, the great makeup artist, create an entire black circle for this Pete the Second, I'll I'll say. Yeah, Pete the Second is easier. So his time, though, with our gang, the second dog, is it true that he got fired? Yeah, Why did, did he get fired? Do well, we know? Actually, the trainer got fired. Oh, and, okay. And, yeah. And I don't know why. Um, and with the with the trainer goes the dog, I right? I know. It, it could have been, you know, financial. It could have been him asking for more money. But anyway... The trainer gets fired. The dog goes too. Well, Lucine, he took Pete the Second back to New York, and he made money by having the dog pose with children at the Steel Pier in Atlantic City. Oh, of course. So my, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah, right. Used to be in film, and now and now you're kind of at the Comic Con, hawking your exactly hawking your goods on the boardwalk. Oh, well. Well, rest in peace, PD-1 and PD-2. I know. There's nobody like PD. Our next creature is also very famous, Jiggs, a.k.a. Cheetah in Tarzan the Ape Man. Cheetah. Didn't everybody love Cheetah? Yes. yes. Cheetah sometimes upstaged Johnny Weismuller and Maureen O'Sullivan. Uh, Cheetah was never mentioned in the initial Tarzan books. No, not at all. In, in fact, there was no mention of any kind of chimpanzee or ape or anything until later books when they introduced an ape called Nakima, but it wasn't Cheetah. So Cheetah was completely made up for the movies. And a lot of people think it was a screenwriter who adapted Edgar Rice Burroughs' novels into screenplays that created the character of Cheetah. Brilliant. Genius. Yeah, it really is because he becomes the sidekick to Johnny Weissmuller. And as you said, you really kind of want to watch him as much as you want to watch Tarzan. Absolutely. You know, Batman had Robin. Fred Flintstone had Barney. Andy Taylor had Barney (laughs) Fife. (laughs) Tarzan had Cheetah. Tarzan had Cheetah. And and what a duo. (laughs) Now, from the get-go, he was used as comic relief for, you know, when the headhunters and the greedy hunters and the ruthless animal poachers became too much to endure, you could cut away to to Cheetah and, and get a good laugh. You gotta have levity and all that head hunting and all that stuff. Right, right. But there were actually a number of different cheetahs, right? There, there were. But you know, the first was obviously Jiggs, who we, we talked about. Right. Jiggs was born in 1929, and he was owned and trained by Tony and Jacqueline Gentry. Cheetah, however, was not so popular with his leading lady, Marina Sullivan. Yeah, I wondered about that. What yeah. happened there? Well, they just never saw eye to eye. And uh, <laughs> Marina Sullivan, she said... Is that because he was so short and she was tall? <laughs> 
Well, I think it was a love triangle because she said in her biography, her autobiography, she said that she really was sort of fearful of Cheetah because he would always try to bite her. She said that Cheetah liked Johnny Weismuller, which is probably the reason he hated me. He was jealous. Wow. So sort of an alpha male thing. Like he just wanted to follow yeah. Johnny. You know, certain dog breeds have Stay that Stay away as from well. my man, Marino Sullivan. Stay away from my man. Yeah. <laughs> Jiggs also appeared in other movies, including Dirty Work in 1933, which was a Laurel and Hardy short, and also in a feature film called Her Jungle Love in 1938, which starred Dorothy L'Amour and Ray Milland. <laughs> I love that I know. title. Her Jungle Love. <laughs> I know. That sounds <laughs> Spicy. <laughs> Sadly, the first and original Jiggs died on February the 28th, 1938, at the age of nine from pneumonia. Oh, really? Which didn't live as, because usually they live much longer. There were other chimpanzees, though, that yes. Gentry, he claimed that it was the same chimpanzee from the early movies? Well, it's very shady and very very questionable, but Gentry, Tony Gentry, the, the original trainer of Jigs, he, suddenly he started parading this chimp around that he called Jigs the Fourth, And he claimed that this chimp had succeeded the original Jigs and portrayed Cheetah in most of the Tarzan movies. Really? And he also claimed that this chimp, Jigs the Fourth, had appeared as Chi-Chi in Dr. Doolittle in 1967. And this created a lot of buzz, a lot of publicity when he's parading this chimp around. And he also said that this chimp was the oldest chimp in captivity at, I think he said that the Chimp was born in 1932, which made him 64 in 1996. Because this is how long this went on. Yeah, this is this is a long time. I mean, most actors want to shave years <laughs> off their age, right? And and this chimp is the whole thing that he's trying to sell is it's the same chimp. It's the and same it's, chimp. Yeah. This chimp became so celebrated that National Geographic covered his 75th birthday. Oh he my was gosh. visited by Jane Goodall. Wow. He had a 76th birthday party in Palm Springs. It was a, this big celebrity. <laughs> laden bash. So here's this, you know, this old chimp being, you know, wheeled around. I wish there were, maybe there are photos. I would love to see photos of this chimp being celebrated. Like, does he have a glass of champagne? Is he eating the hors d'oeuvres? Smoking jacket. Well, finally, somebody had the good sense to kind of question Tony Gentry. And they discovered that Gentry's story was just made up. Completely made up. Total BS. You know, they finally realized that Jiggs the Fourth wasn't nearly as old as he said he was. And the whole thing was just a publicity stunt. It was all a lie. But still, the myth of Jiggs the Fourth continues today. Like, a lot of people still believe that that was the oldest champ. He played Cheetah. Right. But it was all part of Tony Gentry trying to capitalize on the Cheetah mystique. Yep, that's Hollywood, right? (laughs) Well, moving from chimps back to dogs, let's talk about Skippy, a.k.a. Asta. Oh, the best. I love Skippy as Asta in the Thin Man movies. Oh, they're the best. Oh, so great. When I think about Asta, I think, what a perfect trio. And everyone thinks that Nick and Nora Charles, played by William Powell and Myrna Loy, were a duo. It was a trio. It really was. Like, Asta was such an integral part to their crime-solving, their romance, their sophisticated lifestyle. It was just a beautiful, beautiful trio. Asta was part of the family. Asta was their baby. And I love the fact that Asta never really wanted to be included on these crime-solving mysteries. He wanted to live a life of luxury, and they were always, by happenstance, he would 
would get pulled into something and he would find a dead body or find a bone or <laughs> and all he really wanted was just treats and you know have belly rubs right right and that that personality that storyline that you just described really comes out it's amazing what this dog was able to do yeah and he's so associated with the Nick and Nora movies that in Myrna Loy's biography, her autobiography, she wrote, she goes, not one day in my life passes without someone asking me about Bill, William Powell, right. or Asta. Yeah. Now, we know actors go to training, right? <laughs> There's lots of famous acting schools. Or at least they should. <laughs> or at least they should. There was a famous number of them, famous dog training school. The one in particular that, that Skippy, Asta, came from is Studio Dog Training School. And they went on to train some of the biggest dogs in Hollywood. Yes, it was run by a guy named Frank N. And he was famous in the animal training world, especially in the golden era of Hollywood. And as you said, he trained some of the great. Like Old Yeller and Benji and Daisy from the Blondie series and many generations of last. So and, this guy knew his stuff. And Toto, the, <gasps> and the Toto. best. <laughs> well, we will get to. We'll get to Toto. <laughs> so this is a place in Van Nuys, California. Yes. And Skippy was born to them, right? Yes. And made his first debut in a Three Stooges film. Yeah, what a great way to start in, in, with the Stooges. If you like the Stooges. <laughs> I guess it's subjective. <laughs> it is, yes. But you know what? It was really, it was the Thin Man movies that put Asta on the map. I mean, that's what really cemented his place in Hollywood history. Because in the very first Thin Man movie, which was just called The Thin Man in 1934, his very first scene is hysterical. Myrna Loy is being drugged into this restaurant by Asta, carrying all of these packages. And he pulls her in. She topples over. Packages go everywhere. She's flat <laughs> on her face. Very funny. And then, of course, William Powell's Nick Charles walks in and tells the waiter, it's all right. It's my dog. Oh, and my wife. <laughs> Well, then, of course, Nora says, you, yeah, you, you might have mentioned me first in the billing. Yes, exactly. It was really unmatched screen chemistry between Myrna Loy and William Powell and their co-star. But they really weren't allowed to play right. with the dog to create that chemistry. That chemistry was just there. Right. Yeah, the trainers were pretty strict about not having Myrna Loy and William Powell pet the dog much or interact with the dog much outside of the cameras because it would be distracting. And I guess the dog had to just focus completely on the work and the right. cues and the, you know, whatever the training for the dog had been. Myrna Loy goes to talk about this in her autobiography also. And she says that he had this mouse, this squeaky mouse okay. that was sort of a cue for Asta. And she said, I'd squeak the mouse and put it in my pocket. And then Asta would do whatever he was supposed to do. She said that one squeak sent him into transports of delight. That is amazing. <laughs> now, due to Asta's popularity, and I think this has happened over the decades, pet terriers became the thing to have, right? Yes, yes. Interestingly, in the original Thin Man books, by Dashiell Hammett. Yeah. Asta wasn't even a male dog. It was a female dog. It wasn't a wire-haired fox terrier. It was a female schnauzer. Huh. So we changed that up for Hollywood, I guess. And, well, yeah. this terrier face that Skippy has, it just fits so perfectly with that high society. Yes. Now, Skippy appeared in the Thin Man movies, as we said, and that's probably where most people would know him from. But he yes. also starred in a couple of amazing comedies. Indeed. And had he not done the Thin Man movies, I think he still would be a part of Hollywood history for playing Mr. Smith or Smitty in the 
awful truth with <laughs> Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. Right. And he was the dog that they end up fighting over in court as part of their divorce settlement. Wow. <laughs> which sets the whole action in motion. Right, which right. Which all about, you know, who's going to get custody of Smitty. Now, that was 1937. So the following year in 1938, he is in another comedy that... I think everyone will recognize him from Bringing Up Baby, yes. where in that fabulous comedic moment, he, he grabs the dinosaur bone and he buries it. And that's with Katherine Hepburn, of course, and yes. Cary Grant. Yes, Cary Grant's a paleontologist, and he needs this one final bone to finish this dinosaur. And of course, <laughs> you know, Skippy ends up Skippy taking the bone. Skippy steals it. How much was Skippy pulling in at the height of his career? How much money, how much money was Skippy? be making. Yeah, Skippy was a rock star. Skippy was pulling in 250 bucks a week at the height of his career, Oof, which was wow. more than a lot of studio contract players were making. I wonder if they knew that. I wonder if the contract <laughs> players knew that that dog is making more money than I, I know. <laughs> Skippy, he was in films for 10 years. He did 9 pictures. We don't really know when he retired. There was a lot of question about what was his last movie was. Okay. A lot of people say that he appeared in subsequent Thin Man movies, but only doing stunts as he got older. Okay. But we're okay. not sure. Well, Skippy, we love you. Oh, we love Skippy. I think it's time for our Hollywood pop quiz. Steve. It's very simple. Who was the only performer to appear in You Can't Take It With You, It's a Wonderful Life, and The Wizard of Oz? Okay. Short, sweet, simple this week. All right. I can't wait. <laughs> we'll be right back with more stories about our wonderful film creatures after this. Hey, Stephen Ann will be right back. But first, another stop on the Hollywood tour. The world-famous Hollywood Walk of Fame was the brainchild of a guy named E.M. Stewart. He served as the 1953 volunteer president of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. Now, he created the idea that it be a means to, quote, maintain the glory of a community whose name means glamour and excitement in the four corners of the world, unquote. The very first star placed in the sidewalk was that of actress Joanne Woodward. She got her star February 9th of 1960. Well, today there are about 24 new stars dedicated on the Walk of Fame each year. Can you believe that? Here's something you may not have known, though. Upon being selected for inclusion on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, each recipient or a benefactor must then fork over $40,000 for the honor. And now back to Stephen Ann from beneath the Hollywood sign. Next, we're going to be talking about arguably the most famous dog in film history. Yes. And there's been poll after poll that says, what's the most famous dog really? in film history? Really? Okay. He always tops it. And of course, it's Toto from Toto, The Wizard of Oz. Toto, too. I just want to say, Toto was an underrated badass. <laughs> He was, you know, because if you really think about it, if you break down that movie. Yes, I want to hear know, this. Had he not had the wherewithal to pull back that emerald green curtain yep. and to reveal that this great wizard was really this washed up magician, Dorothy and her gang wouldn't have gotten crap. No, you're right. You're right. And along the way, right? Yeah. He also helps. I know. And, and Toto, he had to endure Elvira Gulch's bike ride. A cyclone, crash landing on a, the head of a witch, munchkins, <laughs> another pissed off witch, flying monkeys. All those flying monkeys, they pick him up. Yeah, and still, he was loyal. He, he went was. along with it. He stuck by Dorothy. So I think he is the underrated hero of The Wizard of Oz. I think you are right. <laughs> now, he did not set out to be a star, did he? 
No, it, it's really interesting how he came into the limelight. He was basically owned by this family in Pasadena, and they decided they wanted Terry to be potty trained. So they sent him to Carl Spitz, who was an acclaimed German-born animal trainer who owned and operated Hollywood Animal Training Center in the San Fernando Valley. Okay. And so he was able to house train Terry. But then all of a sudden, when it came time to take Terry back to the family, the family couldn't pay. And after a few more days, Spitz called and the number was disconnected. <laughs> and they never came back for they the dog. They never came back. And so Spitz decided to keep Terry because he noticed that he sort of had a natural instinct for training. And he said, ah, oh, you know, we'll, we'll give it a shot and see how it goes. Wow. And, you know, that's how Terry came to be a Hollywood star. Before The Wizard of Oz, Terry was in a number of movies, right? Yes, he was. He was Buck in Call of the Wild. He was Prince from Wuthering Heights, oh, which wow. I love. Classy. He was Mr. Binky from The Light That Failed in 1939. And he was Musty from The Swiss Family Robinson <laughs> in 1940. I love these names. <laughs> Buck, Prince, Mr. Binky, and Musty. These are... These these are all names to remember for your future dog. Exactly. His screen debut was actually a movie called Ready for Love in 1934, which was a romantic comedy with Ida Lupino and Richard Arlen. But that same year, he won the coveted role of Shirley Temple's beloved Rags in Bright Eyes. Now, he had to audition for that role. Oh, indeed he did. Now, did he have to audition because there was concern that Shirley Temple's real dog wouldn't get along with exactly. Terry? Exactly. That was the whole audition. Terry had to prove that he could get along with Shirley Temple's little dog, Ching Ching. And they got along, they played, and Terry got the part. So how did the role in The Wizard of Oz come about for Terry? Knowing as many actors as I do, you always hear actors say, you know what? I didn't get the part because I cast somebody who looked exactly like the storyboards. Yes. That's what happened to Terry. Because, so he looked exactly like the storyboard. Yes. If you look back at the original drawings from the first book of The Wizard of Oz. Oh, which are so beautiful. You know, the drawing looks exactly like Terry. So when producer Melvin Leroy finally saw Terry come in for an audition, he remembered these original drawings and... That's what stuck, and that's what got him the part. He just looked exactly like those original drawings. Wow. And those original drawings were by W.W. Denslow. So, Which was 1900 edition, the first edition of The Wizard of Oz. Oh Isn't boy. that crazy? Don't you wish you had that? You know, Nan, I just realized I've got to correct myself. I've been calling Toto he this whole time. Terry was actually a she, but of course was playing the male character of Toto, so I've, I've had the pronoun incorrect. Okay, so Toto, Terry, she. is a she. Yeah. Which okay. I don't, I don't think a lot of people knew that. Yeah. She, 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 she. Okay. <laughs> so Terry earned $125 a week for work on The Wizard of Oz. Which was more than the Munchkins made. <laughs> oh my gosh. Again, we go back to... I'm sure there's a little jealousy on the yellow brick road there. <laughs> yes. Now, she did her own stunts, right? Yes, which sometimes didn't work out so great because they had to shut down production for a few weeks because in one scene, one of the witch's guards stepped on Terry's leg and broke it. Oh. So uh, should have brought in that stunt double dog. Yes, yes. She recovered, though, and yes. she went back to work, finished the film. She even attended, once the film was finished, she attended the premiere <laughs> yes. at Grandma's Chinese Theater, right? Exactly. And the movie was so incredibly popular that... 
that Carl Spitz, the yeah. trainer, even officially changed Terry's name to Toto. Aww. So from 1942 on, Terry is now known Terry as Toto. Terry is Toto yes. and goes on to do a lot more films. I mean, with our Virginia Weidler, who we talked about last week. That's right. Yes. Yeah. With Weidler, he's in The Women. Oh, which was, he's um, the dog in the women. He's the little dog in the women. Yeah, from 1939. Wow. And he was so distinctive. I, I think after The Wizard of Oz, anytime you saw Toto in a movie, you're like, oh, that's Toto. Yeah, 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 you could really tell. After The Wizard of Oz, also in 1942, same year, Toto got to reunite with his old Oz nemesis, Margaret Hamilton, in a movie called Twin Beds. Yes. So they're in that together. And he also got to um, reunite with Frank Morgan, who played the wizard, right. in Tortilla Flats. So that was kind of a nice little reunion for Toto. That is very cool. In 1942, Spitz took all of his famous animals because he had a number of animals that he trained, and they went on a nationwide tour. Now, what happened to Toto? This is so sad. But Toto died. Well, Toto died peacefully in his sleep. Okay. um, At the animal ranch that Spitz ran on Riverside Drive in Studio City, California. Which was all great. But unfortunately, when they decided to build the Ventura Freeway in 1958, they dozed through the animal (gasps) sanctuary and Toto's grave was lost. Oh, (laughs) no. I know. But you know, and, and I love this. In Hollywood, there's a great cemetery called Hollywood Forever. Yes. And on June 18th, 2011, they installed a permanent memorial for Toto, which is still there. And I, I love that you can go sort of visit Toto. Yeah. I mean, at least Toto is being remembered. I'm just glad that none of these animals have died of alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. All right. We're going to switch gears and jump into Orangey, who is Cat in Breakfast at Tiffany's. I've always thought that Cat, and we'll talk about it, is a horrible name, but I'm kind of thinking Orangey is almost as bad as Cat. I know. A little on the nose. Yeah, a little on the nose. Tell us about Orangey. Orangey was trained by this famous animal trainer, Frank Ann, who we just talked about, who trained Toto. He was really one of Ann's first stars, but not his last, because of course, Ann, besides Toto, would also do, and I think we mentioned Benji, but also Arnold the Pig from Green Acres came from Frank Ann, and the chimps from Lancelot Link. I don't know if anybody remembers that Saturday morning TV show, but it was about these spies that were, happened to be chimps. (laughs) I don't know. I loved it. (laughs) Exactly, Matahari. Oh Lens remembers. <laughs> and also trained Tramp, the great dog from My Three Son. That oh, big I Eng- was it English Tramp. Sheepdog, I think. Yes, I think it was. Yeah, and a lot of Ellie Bay Clampett's critters from the Beverly Hillbillies right. all came from Frank N. So, he was the gold standard of animal training. It sounds like. Yeah, well, Orangey came from that stock. So, Orangey's role in Breakfast at Tiffany's, let's talk about that for a minute. Oh, just profound. Right? I mean, if you really think about it, I think Orangey sort of lets viewers know about the emotional life of Holly Gold. The character played by Audrey Hepburn so beautifully. Right. She's this person who doesn't have emotional attachments and is just this gypsy-like creature that doesn't want to get tied down and just wants to be free. And she finds this cat, and because of who she is, she can't even commit to a name. So she just calls it Cat. Cat. 
Yes, which I think tells you where she starts out her trajectory in the film. Right. But then later on in the film, as she develops as a person and she gets close to people and she realizes she does have feelings for people, she gets attached to the cat. And she still tries to hang on to that idea that she's not, though. And in this very impetuous moment, she kicks Cat out of a taxi in the rain and immediately regrets it. And then it's such a tearjerker because she then is just distraught trying to find Cat in the rain. And it's right. just heartbreaking. Right. And then George Perpard comes in and yes. there's that wonderful kiss in the rain with yes. Orangey. And, and yes, because she finds Orangey. And you realize Orangey sort of a metaphor for her relationship with George Perpard. Right. Breaking down those barriers to intimacy. Yes. Orangey was great. Orangey appeared in so many great things. Well, one cool thing about Orangey was the only feline to win two Patsy Awards. And Patsy Awards were Picture Animal Top Star of the Year Awards, which was the equivalent of Animals Oscars. Orangey won the first Patsy for a feature film in 1951 called Rhubarb, Hmm. which is, it's a fun movie, and it's all about this cat that inherits a baseball team. (laughs) And comedy ensues. (laughs) Okay, I'm writing that down. Yes. Putting that on the list. I know, it's actually a cute movie. I saw it when I was a kid. Did you? Yeah, it stars Ray Milan and Jan Sterling. It's it's really a fun movie, and it's all about the cat. I mean, it's talk about almost in every scene, Orangey's there. So you know that cat had to be trained. (laughs) Orangey was in a lot of films, but the one that I remember specifically where I kind of wanted to kill Orangey was The Diary of Anne Frank, where he almost reveals where they are hiding. Yes. Yeah, I don't want people after me for wanting to kill the cat, but that would have been a legitimate, I know. know. Yeah, Orangey almost gave away the family's hiding place, so Orangey was used for dramatic tension. Yes. (laughs) But you know, one movie that I do want to talk about, and it's it's one of Orangey's probably best-known roles, is The Incredible Shrinking Man in 1957. Who doesn't remember that scene where Grant Williams is running from the cat and dodges inside of a little girl's dollhouse, and then there's all these shots of him inside a dollhouse and this cat's face trying to come through the window and the paw <laughs> coming right. through the door. It, it was riveting and it was really well done if you go back and look at it for the, the era. Yes. Just the effects were really cool and there's Orangey's big menacing face trying to kill Grant Williams. I, I love it. And Orangey as many other stars have done in the past transitioned from film into television. That seemed to be the career trajectory, I think, for a lot of people. Right. Orangey, he appeared in My Favorite Martian. He was in Mission Impossible, where he was this feline secret agent named Rusty. <laughs> and, and one of my favorites, he was Eartha Kitt's Catwoman's cat in the Batman series. That that's quite a coup. Yes. Right? That's, if you're the if you're Catwoman's cat, you yes. gotta be a pretty yeah. special cat. And Eartha Kitt. <laughs> and Eartha Kitt, exactly. Yes. One interesting thing about Orangey is there's a documentary about Orangey's career. <laughs> wow. I know in 2020, this Canadian filmmaker named Sophia. Bodanovitz, she shot this doc called The Hardest Working Cat in Show Business. <laughs> and it's the strangest, most bizarre, most wonderful short documentary you've ever seen. And Aww. it really does cover the whole scope of this cat's career. And everyone should really check it out. It, it's worth a look. amazing. Yeah. Well, Orangey died at the age of 16, and he's buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Hollywood Hills with his trainer, Frank Inn. Yes, a very fitting ending to Orangey. <laughs> Our last beautiful, wonderful animal that we're going to talk about is a doggy named Spike. Oh, this one kills me. A.K.A. Old Yeller. Yeah. 
And yeah. this is a rags to riches story. It really, I really mean, is. <laughs> his his background is amazing. He started as a stray. Yeah, they found him on the street, I believe. To me, in Old Yeller, that dog gives such a performance. And you don't think of animals as actually giving a emotional performance. Yeah. That dog does. Yeah. And if you don't cry at the end of Old Yeller, you are not alive. Yeah, you don't have a pulse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's really remarkable when you watch that animal and what he's able to do to us as viewers emotionally. Now, he was a yellow matador, which I had not heard of, but that's a combination of a mastiff and a Labrador mix, right? Yes. I, I didn't know that breed either. And um, he was named Spike yes, originally? Originally named Spike. And he was came to the attention of another great animal trainer called Frank Weatherwax. And he's the guy who's kind of known for the, the lassie the collies. Lassies, he's the one who trained yes. all the lassies. And he thought Spike might be trainable, so he, he paid three bucks for him. <laughs> oh my gosh. And this face. I mean, yes. I'd pay a million dollars for him. He's just so adorable. Apparently, Spike was great at training. He really learned to obey the orders and learn the commands, and he expanded his tricks. Before long, he was in a movie. Uh, you know, he made his screen debut in 1956 in the horror movie The She Creature uh, with Chester Morris, Tom Conway, and Kathy Downs. You know, it was a small part, but it, it really put him on the map because it showed that he could handle the commands and the training and being on set. How did Spike? get involved in the movie Old Yeller? Uh, it was really Frank Weatherwax's wife, Connie, who got him the job. Because oh. She read in the Saturday Evening Post that they were doing, um, you know, where they had had a serialized story about Old Yeller, which was by Frank Gibson. And they were turning it into a movie, and she saw this notice. So she said, you know, to her husband, she goes, you really should get Spike in there. He would be perfect for this dog. And so Frank Weatherwax went to the studio. And this is Spike. Disney. Yeah, this is all Disney. Right, right. You know, took Spike in there. And, you know, at first, the Disney people, they weren't impressed. They saw this kind of goofy, sweet, floppy-eared dog with big <laughs> feet. And they thought, how is this dog ever going to convey, you know, this protective quality that Old Yeller eventually has to portray right. when he's trying to save the family? Right. Spike had been trained. I mean, so he knew what to do. He was uh, raised around kids. He loved people. But the minute Frank Weatherwax gave the signal or yeah. the command, right. The teeth snarl, the, the head shakes. I mean, he becomes this vicious, vicious dog. That is amazing. And that was it. They were convinced. He was the wow. guy. Wow. That's the equivalent of being able to cry on cue, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Attack on cue, or at least look like you're going to. So Old Yeller made him a huge star, right? And it yes. also created, again, a demand for Yellow Lab mixes across America, which is still prevalent today. Still prevalent today. I always love how you can almost look at popular dogs throughout the decades based on movies. Yes. You know, it was Collies for a while, then it was Terriers for a while, then it right. was the Dalmatians, and then it was and the, then the Benji yeah, Mutt. The Benji yeah. Mutt, yeah. yeah I yeah. love that. Old Yeller appeared in a lot of different movies. He was in A Dog of Flander in 1960, and he also became a regular in a TV Western called The Westerner in 1960, which starred Brian Keith. One of his next projects was a feature film called The Silent Call in 1961, where he was really the star because the whole that movie starred Gail Russell, who I love, David McLean, and it was all about a family who were forced to leave their beloved family pet behind when they moved from Nevada. I'm going to stop right there because who would ever leave your pet behind? Yeah. I mean, there's something wrong, right? <laughs> yes. Well, this scrappy little guy played by Spike was able to 
traverse the mountains and go through the deserts and reunite with the family in this nice tear-jerking movie. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. And you know, he's also really great and a very integral part of one of my favorite horror movies. <laughs> Have you ever seen Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice? No. It was about, it was this wealthy woman who lived in this isolated house in the desert played by Geraldine Page. Oh, the we great. love. Yeah. And she starts getting these women to come and be her her housekeepers, and she kills them for their pensions. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spike plays the dog of the next-door neighbor, played by Rosemary Forsythe, and uh-huh. her little son, Michael Barbera. Um, or maybe it was her nephew. I don't think it was her son. But anyway, he's the family dog, and he plays a very important part in this thriller. So that's a great role for Spike. Spike spent his retirement years in the Weatherwax's household, right? The the trainer's household, where he lived for several more years after becoming famous. And he had offspring that did well in show business he as did. well. He did. He had a son who was in Island of the Blue Dolphins in 1964. And he had a grandson that appeared with Steve McQueen and Robert Preston and Idol. Filipino in Junior Bonner in 1972. You know, I'm thinking about all these amazing trainers and how hard it must have been when these animals that they, I would think, had fallen in love with, had trained, had worked with, when they passed. Because we know how hard it is to lose a doggy. Absolutely. Or maybe they just thought the money train ends. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my dark heart comes out. On that note, (laughs) Steve, what is the answer to this week's Hollywood Pop Quiz? Well, the question was, who was the only performer to appear in You Can't Take It With You, The Wizard of Oz, and It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, I I don't know. Well, it's a little bit of a trick question because the answer is Jimmy the Raven. Ooh. (laughs) Yes, a bird is our answer. A bird. And Jimmy had an interesting life. He was trained by a, a guy named Curly Twyford who actually stole him from his nest in the Mojave Desert in 1934. And Twyford trained Jimmy to do all kinds of tricks. He could open letters. He could type. He could light a cigarette. He could flip through magazines. He could even deal a hand of poker and ride a motorcycle. (laughs) This is astounding. Yes. Jimmy the Raven. Who would have thought Jimmy the Raven? (laughs) Well, there are lots of other animals to talk about, but that's all the time that we have for today. Thanks so much for listening. We hope if you haven't already, please follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube with the handle at From Beneath the Hollywood sign. And if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at From Beneath the Hollywood sign.com. That's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood sign with Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schneble. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit AirwaveMedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow end with Schneebly and Toth. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. That's a wrap. Oh.